morning. Somebody asked me uh, this morning if I've ever been here before. <laughs> I first started coming to this church in 1953. Mrs. McGuire's Sunday school class, third grade. And uh, met the girl that would become my wife right out there in front of the Harris Missionary Home, which is no longer, but she is. And. Uh, <laughs> We graduated from Ferndale High School, went to Western Baptist Bible College in El Cerrito. Uh, we were married right here uh, several years ago. <laughs> and uh, your pianist, not the young one, but the older one, <laughs> was our flower girl. I was ordained right here in this church. We were commissioned to go to Germany as missionaries from this church. And uh, this church supported us in those early years of our ministry in Germany. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. As we come to this text this morning, I want you to understand that some, <clears throat> including Dr. MacArthur, in his new book, One Perfect Life, when putting the four Gospels together chronologically, do not leave this passage together. In fact, the um, part about the storm and the ship come earlier in the chronology. MacArthur, in a related comment in the introduction of his book, makes this statement, while the blending represents our effort such that the order is not infallible, Every word comes from the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture because that same Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to put these together. I'm going to take the liberty to treat them together this morning as we look at the topic, Discipleship Tested. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we come humbly with your word this morning realizing that it's not the words of men that are important, but your word. And so I pray that it would be your word that would come across this morning. Not mine, but yours. May our hearts be open, responsive to what you have for us this day. We pray this for every group of believers that's gathered around your word this morning, that your word might go forward in power of the Holy Spirit, that you would be glorified as lives are changed, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I'm sure you've noticed how expensive it is to live today. I'm old enough to remember 20 cent a gallon gasoline, actually it was 18 we used to pay on the farm. I sold hamburgers for 14 cents at McDonald's once. On the other hand, nobody works for a dollar and a quarter anymore. But it's expensive to live. I heard some German friends complaining that it was going to cost them 1,300 
dollars to send their kid to university. And I kind of laughed when I thought of what it costs to go to school here. It's not the 1600 a semester that I used to pay. It's uh, quite a bit more than that. In fact, Corbin, which is Western Baptist Bible College, they just changed the name for some reason. But anyway, Corbin sends out this little CD-sized calendar. And as I was uh, pulling out April to reveal May, I looked at the back, and for last year, it was going to cost for tuition, room, and board $35,526. Ooh. Oh, you're right. A few years ago, the U.S. government said it would cost a middle-class family $160,140 to raise a child to age 18. That's before college. It's expensive to live. This life is expensive. You all know about the story of creation, specifically where God wanted to get Adam some help. Adam, God said, you need help. If you're going to rule over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and every creeping thing on the earth, you're going to need some help. Got that right, answered Adam. What do you have in mind? Well, God said, I could make your wife. She'd be just what you need. She'd be beautiful. She'd rub your back at night and your feet in the morning. Why are you laughing? She would cook your favorite food every day. She'd clean your house, take care of your children. All you'd need to do is sit around and be king of the home. Wow, said Adam. That sounds great. But what would it cost? Well, God said, it's not cheap. She'd cost you an arm and a leg. Adam thought for a moment and then asked, uh, what can I get for a rib? But God was compassionate and gave him the whole thing. So I, I hope that I uh, redeem myself with that. Um, I'm very thankful for my wife. She has uh, stood beside me all these years. The PowerPoint that you'll see is all her thing. I, I heard one time, if you're not a good speaker, you've got to have something they can have in their hands to take notes. And if you're really bad, you need pictures. And really bad, you need colored pictures. Um, <laughs> She types my notes, and then she does this. I don't have anything to do with this. So uh, I really appreciate that. Everyday life is expensive. But have you considered lately what your life in Christ cost? It cost God the life of his son. Jesus took our sins upon himself to satisfy the wrath of a holy God against sin and gave his life on the cross that you might live that we might live. He paid the ultimate price, his life. And in doing so, he was able to give us salvation free. You don't pay anything for it. Entirely a work of grace. But though eternal life is a free gift for all who acknowledge their sin, repent, and place their trust in Christ, discipleship, is very costly. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor and theologian who Hitler put to death just before the end of the Second World War, wrote, Salvation is without cost, but discipleship will cost you your life. When Jesus said, follow me, he not only offered eternal life, but he demanded discipleship. I'm afraid most who claim to be Christians do not really understand what discipleship means. We're not talking about a discipleship class, although that may be needed. We're not talking about refer, or referring to agreeing to a specific set of regulations or a particular lifestyle, though that may be involved. Discipleship is, I hope you're ready for this, to bring everything we are, everything we have, everything we desire and strive for to the Lord Jesus Christ to be under his absolute sovereign control and to in unreserved trust emulate him, his character, his life. That's discipleship. And every Christian has been called to discipleship. It's costly. It costs your life. A gospel that seeks to camouflage this. Oh, all you have to do is agree with these four things, sign your name on the line, and you're in. Is not the gospel. Jesus is clear in describing the way of discipleship. If you will come after me, Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Everything must be placed under his control. My will, my plans, my goals, my career, my family, my friends, my time, my possessions, my hobbies, my comfort, my preferences, and if there's anything else, that too. Because if, Lord, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Discipleship is costly. It demands my all. And we have been called as Christians to make disciples. As you are going, Jesus says, make disciples. It's the one command of the Great Commission given to the disciples and to all disciples since. Make disciples. And we do that by leading people to Christ, by bringing them to publicly confess their faith in Christ as they are baptized, and by teaching them to observe all things that he has commanded. Sometimes I think we at least got that last part right because there's a lot of people watching. They're observing, but that's not what it means. It means to heed it to obey it, to do it, all that he has commanded. And this is not an easy task and is only made more difficult when some try to simplify the process, lessen the demands required, and the surrender necessary. An incomplete gospel is no gospel. Consider what liberalism 
did with the gospel. A while back there was a survey trying to determine how many people are actually evangelical believers in various countries. And they determined that uh, in the 1040 window, the Muslim area that stretches across that part of our globe, 2% are evangelical believers. I should say their definition of an evangelical believer was somebody that believed there's a God, believed that the Bible is his word, that Jesus is his son, and to get to heaven you have to have a relationship with Jesus. So it's a pretty loose definition. They said in that area, 2% were believers. In Bangladesh, Muslim and Hindu area, 3%. China, this was several years ago, so it's possibly different now, 7%. In Germany, the land of the Reformation, the birthplace of Martin Luther, what do you think the percent is there? With the Lutheran Church having been the state church, still considered the state church, where half of the people in Germany are members of that church by birth, 1.8%. 1.8%. We were asked when we were going to Germany, why go to Germany? It's a Christian nation. Really? People in Africa have more of a chance to hear the gospel than they do in Europe today. And by the way, Europe is fast becoming Muslim. In all of my study in God's word with regards to the intentions, the expectation, the demands of Christ concerning my life, I have never found the slightest suggestion that Christ separates being a Christian and being a disciple. They are one and the same. You cannot be a Christian without being a disciple. Discipleship is not just for the super spiritual. Discipleship is commanded of all who would claim to be followers of Christ, that is, claim to know Christ as their Savior and hold claim to eternal life. Each one of them, each one of us, is to be a disciple. It's not an optional thing where I can opt in or opt out. Every Christian is a member of Christ's discipleship class. And that can be a pleasure or it can be a pain. That's up to you. The Apostle Paul states it this way, That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, the word Lord, the title Lord means absolute master, master of your life. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In other words, saving faith is a gracious gift of God that we are to accept and apply through faith, a faith that God gives us 
and we're to place our entire lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the absence in that verse in Romans 10, 8 and 9 of the article before Lord. It just says, Jesus as Lord makes it very personal. He is Lord, not a Lord, or even the Lord, but Lord of my life. He is my Lord. I am to confess him as my Lord. We just sang that in the song Cornerstone. He is Lord. Is he my Lord this morning? Is he your Lord this morning? Before we come to our text in Matthew, we need to ask ourselves if we have indeed come to that relationship with Jesus Christ. Or have we been duped by a gospel of cheap grace that offers something without cost and makes the demands of Christ regarding discipleship optional. Well, I just want to be sure I don't go to hell. I want to go to, to heaven. So, yeah, I, I'll sign the card. But to surrender all, it's a bit much, isn't it? Paul says, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable spiritual service of worship. In other words, before you can enjoy the riches of Christ, you need to become bankrupt. And he needs to own everything. I was thinking the other day, it's kind of like my mom had a living trust written up. She was at the point where she could not handle her own affairs. So she put everything in my name. Put me in charge. Gave me authority over her affairs. And that's exactly what we are to do. Is Jesus Christ in charge of your affairs this morning? Is he really your Lord? In our scripture text this morning, we meet a couple of applicants for the position of disciple. They've come to Jesus to apply, and he tests their qualifications. As I read through this passage, it was clear to me that the whole passage goes together. And so we're going to look at it that way as we look at three tests of discipleship. The context, Jesus has preached the Sermon on the Mount. He's come down from the mountain. He's on his way to Capernaum, the hometown of uh, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And on the way, he heals a leper. He heals the servant of a Roman army officer. They come to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is with a very high fever, and he heals her, and she gets up and serves them. And news of these wonderful acts spread quickly. And they didn't even have Twitter or whatever. But it covered the countryside. Wow, something's happening here in Capernaum. Let's get over there. 
And so the crowd comes and they bring the demon possessed and they bring the sick and the lame and he heals them. And it gets late into the evening. He's busy healing and now he seeks respite from all this activity. And it says in the text, he gave a command to state with force and authority, this is what you need to do. He gave a command to his disciples that said, get in the boat, go into the other side. And before they can leave, a couple of guys come up. Hey, this is great. We want to be a part of this. Excited by the mighty works, they want to join his team. When we... Uh, got to Felmar this, the second time we went to Germany. Uh, it didn't take long for people to hear that we were there. And not only did the Lutheran pastor in our area get all excited and tell me in no uncertain terms they didn't need another church there because his church was just a small church. It only had 2,000. Uh, only 200 attended, though. And so when I asked him what do you do with the other 1,800, he said, oh, you don't have to worry about them. They've all been baptized. So, uh, but he didn't need another church. But others heard that the word of God was being taught in our living room. And so it didn't take long to get a group of people together. In fact, it got to the point where they not only filled our little living room, but they were in the kitchen and out in the hallway. And I'd like to be able to tell you that they all stayed. But they didn't. There are always those who are lookers, not learners. Consumers, not committed. Pretenders, not pursuers of holiness. In our text, Jesus puts discipleship to the test. Matthew chapter 8, verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The first test I see here is how good is my promise? Think back to when you came to Christ. What promises did you make? Promises easily made are easily broken. So often promises are made in the heat of of uh, emotion. Vows are made in the heat of emotion, whether elation or fear. And when things cool down, promises are forgotten. School started with all kinds of excitement. We're all going to get a tablet. Sixth grade through eighth grade, everybody gets a tablet. And it's not going to cost you anything. It's free. Just sign this tech agreement. Well, sure, I'll sign the tech agreement. And I'll get my mom and dad to sign the tech agreement. And even though it says I'm responsible for breakage and this kind of stuff, it's free. Why not? We've been testing these last three weeks. Half of them come without the tablet because it doesn't work. They lost their charger. It's not charged. It's been a disaster. They forgot their promise to take care of the thing. 
Where's your tablet? I don't know. The last time I saw it was Boys and Girls Club. When there's no cost, there's not a lot of commitment. This guy, this applicant for the position of disciple was a scribe, an expert in the law of Moses, a theologian. He belonged to a group of people who, along with the Pharisees, were the arch enemies of the Lord. And now he comes to Jesus and he calls him teacher and unmistakably declares his allegiance. I will follow you wherever you go. That's the way it was. When a teacher had disciples, they were fully committed to him. It was a similar, uh, basically the same relationship as a slave and a master. A slave has no, nothing of his own, no authority over himself. He is totally submissive to his master. He's devoted to someone else and disregards his own interests. And so it was with a disciple-teacher relationship. I will follow you wherever you go. Total submission. Nothing of his own. Absolute obedience. That claim was similar to that one that Peter made. Though I would be required to die, I will never leave you. I mean, that's the teacher-disciple relationship. Wow. Who could turn that down? Absolute surrender. It's the vow to submit to the Lordship of Christ. I'll go wherever you go. Wouldn't we trade 12 fishermen for one scribe like this? Think of his knowledge, his gifts, his experience. What potential? I'm afraid we would have been so excited that someone was responding. We would have accepted him with open arms and no questions, but not so with Jesus. Jesus knew that a spontaneous claim does not necessarily reflect a strong commitment. For Jesus, discipleship did not mean just a hanger-on, somebody just going along. Someone on the fringes, attending Sunday morning worship, putting $10 in the offering, and hoping to stay out of trouble till next Sunday. That's not what he was looking for. A disciple is a learner, an imitator, one who is striving to take on the character of his teacher. That's what a disciple did. He was trying to emulate his teacher. He's committed to participate in the process as God changes him into the image of Christ. He's a pursuer of holiness. That describe you this morning? A pursuer of holiness. It's not always a pleasant process. The scribe would need to surrender all that he was and had to Christ. His position, his ability, his associations, his reputation, his prestige, his possessions, his pension, maybe even his home and his family. All of his comforts. Jesus said to him, a fox has his burrow. And a bird has his nest. But the son of man, a term of humiliation. 
that Jesus used for himself. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Are you really ready for this? Are you really going to follow me in this? There's no place for self-indulgence in Jesus' plan. He had fewer comforts than many animals. Are you just emotionally aroused by the events of the past few hours? Or are you really willing to walk in my footsteps? Have you counted the cost? Can you handle uncertainty and discomfort and dependency and contempt? Spurgeon wrote this, He who is our head had no place to lay his head, and no follower is greater than his master. Really? You'll follow me wherever I go? You do not bear your cross and come after me. You cannot be my disciple. And again, what a terrible disservice we do when we veil the cost of discipleship. Just agree with these three verses and sign your name and you're in. Jesus didn't, that wasn't his plan. Seems that this man's promise was too hasty, ill-considered and superficial. It doesn't appear that he ever got in the boat. His promise to follow wherever was an empty promise, empty words. You remember the promises you made when you came to Christ? Remember the situation you found yourself in? Promises you may have made, if you just get me out of this, I'll. We sing, he is Lord, he is Lord, but is he my Lord? The Christian life is not adding Jesus to one's own way of life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his and being willing to pay whatever cost that may require. The second test, what are my priorities? Verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. On the surface, that seems like a reasonable request. We heard in Sunday school this morning, some people that are looking in the not too distant future, positively having to go and bury a father. Why didn't Jesus understand that? First of all, when it says another of the disciples, we do not need to think this was one of the 12. Jesus had a lot of disciples beyond the 12. In fact, he says in John chapter 6, 64 and 66, Jesus said to his disciples, but there are some of you that believe not. And having said that, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. There were those that just were following along, enjoying the, the action, seeing what they could see, getting what they could get. They were only hangers-on, in it for what they could see and experience, not to be confused with genuine disciples. Imitations instead of imitators. Curious but not committed. Actors, but not authentic. 
leaners, but not learners. And it seems that this applicant for the position of a disciple belonged to this group. He expressed the desire to be disciples, but he was not ready to do it now. He had no plans to get in the boat. He had other priorities, other things to do. Do you see the contradiction in his statement? The first four words, Lord, let me first. Lord, master, complete sovereign over my life. Let me first. You can't put those together like that. He had something else he wanted to do. Now you say, well, he was going to go bury his dead. His reason for delay sounds reasonable, but it, but it was a cultural idiom for delay. It referred to the son's responsibility to help his father with the family business until his father died. So it's quite probable that this man's father was still alive and fine. But he wanted to stick it out until his father died, then he would have the business, or at least he would have the inheritance. When I have that, then I will follow you. Wait till I've buried my father. When my father dies, I receive my inheritance and have some financial security, and I'll be ready to follow. I won't have to go on deputation to be a missionary. I'll have it all in my pocket. But Jesus, when he says, follow me, says, follow me now. Let the world take care of the things of the world, Jesus says to him. You follow me now. Not when you finish school. Not when you're set up in business. Not when you feel financially secure. Not when you have first worked your plan. But now, you follow me now. What seems to be a reasonable request was seen by the Lord as a divided allegiance. He would find it difficult to separate himself from his world. James writes, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. One who is driven by opposing interest is unstable. Indecision has no place in discipleship. Anything less than total commitment is no commitment. Jesus said, the man who's always looking back cannot plow a straight furrow. I remember that as a kid. I was always glad that you could disc it up later. And then nobody would see that you didn't go straight across the field. The problem was when you sowed the grain, it was hard to hide. The third test. test of discipleship is how strong is my pistis. I had to find another word with P, you know. My promises, my priorities, my pistis. That's the Greek word for faith. Are you exercising faith in your life? Do you practice faith you live by faith. Our time is almost gone, but I want you to see the connection of this stormy experience 
to the previous verses. I can only guess based upon my... I'll just put it bluntly, my sinful thoughts and attitudes, my experience through the years with working with people, that there were 12 pretty smug disciples that got in the boat with Jesus. Hey, guys, look at those wannabe disciples. They just don't have it. They don't have what we have. They don't have the right stuff to be a follower of Christ. They don't have our commitment, our unselfishness, and above all, our faith and our trust. They're just not of our spiritual caliber. Otherwise, they'd have gotten the boat. When it has to do with fulfilling his command, he sure is lucky to have us. Depart to the other side plays right into our strength. We're fishermen. We know this lake like the back of our hand. We can handle it. These guys are too wimpy. We don't need him to get to the other side. Let him sleep. Maybe they didn't say that, but that's what came across in their actions. How often do we go through life like practical atheists? Never coming to him for direction. We just do it. We just go our way. Don't ask God. Don't really need him. I can handle this. And then the storm comes. Then what do you do? I want to read a part of a letter I received last week directed to our board. In all the years of marriage, we have seen a great God provide for us in many ways. So we've learned to not fret. The life of faith. God provided her husband with a good job for the last 23 years, and we counted our blessings each year. But then all changed. Arlene and I were down, it was between Christmas and New Year's, we were down visiting our children in California when I got a call from one of the other guys on the board. He said, uh, they took Mark to the hospital today. He's on life support, not expected to live. Wow, he was healthy as an ox the last time I saw him. And he got a cough. It was pneumonia. And it went to swine flu. And then two strokes. And now he's laying in bed in a coma, not expected to live. Now what do you do? Would your faith be strong enough to get through that? And we came home and I saw him laying there. It was like the next time I see him is probably going to be in the box. I mean, he just looked like death. Can your faith handle that? 
she goes on to say, I was aware of what was happening, but did not doubt God would take care and get us through whatever was to befall. The name Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, came to mind. With a peace in my heart, I knew God would provide yet again far, uh, excuse me, yet again for whatever was in the future, even what we didn't know about at the time. I didn't know what, what God would do or what it would look like as we walked through this sickness. Trusting God, faith in God, knowing God is in, in charge of my affairs, resting in that, not fretting, faith. And by the way, Mark was in church two weeks ago. Five months. He still has only a little movement with his fingers on his left arm. Uh, there is some movement in his leg, so there is some encouragement there. Um, but they are praising God. And their faith has been not shattered, but strengthened. The storm comes. How do we react? Faith and follow go together. Dependence and discipleship go hand in hand. There's no discipleship without faith, without trust. Just as there's no real trust, no real faith, without discipleship. How can you be so calm, Jesus? Wake up. Are you insensitive to our danger? God has a way of putting our faith to test, not to destroy it, but to grow it. Don't have time to go there, but read James 1, 2 through 4. For the, the trial of your faith works patience, and it grows you if the foundation is really there if the relationship to the Savior is really there. It's no different here, and the disciples failed as miserably as the previous two wannabe disciples. All of a sudden, they found themselves at the end of their ability. They couldn't master the storm. The lake was going to be in the boat instead of the boat in the lake. They were going to die. They were perishing. They feel lost. And the Lord is sleeping. It's the only time we see that Jesus slept. And I don't think it was because he was tired, although certainly as a man, he needed rest as all men do. And he was tired. He had worked all day healing, and, and I'm sure a lot was going out of him and all of that. So certainly he needed to rest, but that's not the only reason he was sleeping. He was sleeping to test their faith. Would they wake him? Would they call on him? And they did. Save us, Lord. They actually went to him in their need. We are perishing In 
in Mark chapter 4. You don't need to, to go there. Um, well, maybe she's going to go there for you. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Then he arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And Matthew says, Little faith. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were fearful of the storm, but now they feared exceedingly. MacArthur has a note in his study Bible to that. This is not fear of being harmed by the storm, but a reverence for the supernatural power Jesus had just displayed. The only thing more terrifying than having a storm outside the boat was having God in the boat. They were timid in the face of the storm, fearful in the presence of Christ. Why are you timid, you man of little faith? Discipleship tested, how strong is my faith? So much more could be gleaned from this text. Discipleship tested, how did you do? Are you fulfilling your promises to the Lord that you made as you trusted him as Lord and Savior? Or had you failed to count the cost? And now you find the price of true discipleship too high. You pass the test of priorities. Are other goals and desires and things and distractions keeping you from total commitment and following in his steps? Are you a disciple practicing faith and trust, learning patience as your faith is challenged and tested? Or are you struggling in fear and doubt? Lord, teach us to live by faith. Help us learn that you keep those in perfect peace who trust in thee. Of course, all this talk about discipleship is meaningless if we first have not come to Jesus Christ in saving faith and made him Lord and Savior of our life. If you've not done that, why not this morning? I'll be around here at the front uh, at the end, if you'd like to talk to me or find somebody you know and trust here and settle that issue today, that's the most important. And make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. And sometimes, even as the writer of Scripture says, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing right to the very inner part of our being, into our souls. And I pray that if you have pierced somebody's heart today with your word, that they would respond in the right way to that and come to Jesus. Confessing their sins, repenting of their sins, and coming in faith and taking him as Lord and Savior of their lives. For those of us that know Christ, help us to come to that place of total commitment as disciples of Jesus, not those just out there on the fringe following for what we can see and experience and get, but all out for Jesus Christ in a day when this world needs light and salt. Help our lives to be lived in a way that will bring glory and honor to you. That Ferndale might see that those folks at First Baptist, they love the Lord. 
They are sold out to the Lord. Their lives are committed to him. They are living for the Lord and their lives are becoming conformed to the image of Christ. And we see it. We see Jesus in them. May that be what happens here. And I thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.